Proverbs today is the sixth, so we're in chapter 16, or six, excuse me. Um, so we got a few, uh, a few verses because they hook together. So today, um, verses 16 to 19, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. That must mean that the seventh one goes to another level or something. I'm not quite sure. Um, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that are shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil. So that's the first six. Or no, five. A, a false witness who pours out lies, that's six. And then the seventh one, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Interesting scripture. So much for the Proverbs 6 today. We've been in this series about guardrails, and I know the worship community has been very gracious because I brought this, this prop th- to give some visual interest, and they're going to get their real estate back starting next week because this is the last one on guardrails. And um, you know, we've been talking about them for a while because it's a, it's a great metaphor. You see, you see guardrails out there, but you don't see them. You drive around, and um, sometimes they guide where you're driving, and they protect you from going off, but you don't really think about them. And in fact, you don't want to have anything to do with them, right? You're glad they're there, but you don't want to have anything to do with them. But if you do have something to do with them, you're glad that you are. I mean, it's convoluted logic. I don't know if you get that or not, but, you know, they're designed to create a small accident. It's a trade-off. You know, you're trading your pawn for the queen, right? You need chess players? No, no chess players. And, okay, so it, it's, it's intended to cause a little accident, to save you from something way worse. And uh, so we've been talking about it in a figurative term. What if we had guardrails in our lives that we build? We say, okay, this, this is a dangerous area for me. I'm going to build a guardrail to keep me from going off into that canyon. And uh, so there's my guardrail. And if I bump into it, I don't like it. It causes a little bit of chafing and maybe a small accident, but I'll trade that for the bigger one. And we were saying, you know, what would it look like if we had guardrails in our lives, and we've been talking about things like uh, friendships, we talked about sex, we talked about alcohol, we talked about money, we talked about all kinds of things, and uh, what would it look like if we had had those guardrails in our lives? Because I think for most of us, we can look back and say, you know, when we had disaster in our lives, if there had been a guardrail there, things could have been a little different. God bless you. <laughs> and, and so... Um, what would it be like? And so we said, okay, well, for us, a guardrail in that context is a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of our own conscience. In other words, it's, 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 it's personal because you make it up. I'm not standing up here saying, do this, don't do that, and so forth. The Word of God gets into those kinds of topics. But this is something that you decide, oh, that's not good for me. I'm going to draw a line, and I'm not going to cross it, and that's going to be my guardrail. And, uh, you know, it's... The way it would work is that as you get close, your own internal lights start flashing. Your own alarm system starts to go clang, 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 and you can't stand that, so you back away. That's how it's supposed to work. Your own mechanism is at work. And the thing is that the people around you, maybe the people at work, they may not get it. They may think you're weird, in fact. You know, culture is not going to help you with this. We've talked about that. Culture does the opposite. It pretends to help you, but basically says, hey, come here. Come on over here. Like, you know, how about another credit card? How about another credit card? And then when you decide to say okay to what culture is saying, come on and do, when you crater financially, then the same culture that invited you to get the credit card now slaps you down and says you're irresponsible. You're not going to get help from culture. Baits you and then mocks you. So today, I want to talk about the big pushback. 
why we don't do this. And um, I mean, because I think probably if you've been here, you've been listening to these messages and you've had, there's two tracks that are going on in our minds. One is this. Man, I hope my wife's listening to this. <laughs> or my son, or my grandkids, or I'm going to get a copy of the CD. They're free. They're free online. I'm going to get this and share it with somebody, or I'm going to save this up for my kids, or you know, we, I hope somebody else gets this. And then the other track is, I'm not going to do it, though. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the other track that's probably more common than we would want to uh, admit. And the reason is we're thinking, you know, I feel okay about where I am, and frankly, if I put up a guardrail, it's going to keep me from something that I want that's over there. I'm going to miss out on something. I'm going to be, um, you know, I, I, like, I, I, I like the idea of giving, but I want to buy. Or I understand about moral, or, I, or let's say financial responsibility, but I want to drive that. I mean, we say those kinds of things, and so we decide just we're not going to build ourselves a guardrail. I want to get an A in class, but there are lots of ways to get an A in the class, so I just don't think I want to do that. And so that's the reason why many of us have maybe liked some of the things we talked about here in the series, but we still just go home, though, and we keep doing what we've always done. You agree with the message, you hope your kids are on board with it, but you say, I'm not so sure if I do it, that I might be leaving some things on the table I just don't want to live without, so just, I'm just not going to do it. And I'm going to just start out by giving you a couple of things. To, I'm going to point out a couple of things that I think are true. You probably would concede these things about whether you have guardrails or not. Whether you have a guardrail or not, or whether you decide to forget it, the tension that you're experiencing is not going to go away, whether you have a guardrail or not. Here's an example. Uh, I'm going to buy a car I can't afford because I really want that car bad. So I'm going to go ahead and buy that car, and I know that I should have a guard right here that keeps me from doing it, but I'm going to buy the car. So you buy the car, and maybe for a while you feel pretty good about it, but in a year or two, you have still got the same tendency, the same, the next time another car comes along that you feel like you've got to have, whether you can afford it or not, you're saying, um, now I want to get that one. I mean, the tension doesn't go away just because you buy the car. And the tension doesn't go away if you build a guard. The tension is just not going to go away. Here's another example, a moral one. Um, I'm married. A guy's married, and he says, you know, I love my wife, but I kind of like the way this woman looks at me at work, and so I think I kind of want to spend more time with her. And um, I know I shouldn't have a girlfriend on the side, but um, if nobody knows, I'll just like it. She'll like it. It'll be fine. The problem is this. The tension that you feel as you think that through. After you have the girlfriend, tension didn't go away. And in fact, in six months when she leaves you, the possibility that another woman will, would become a, a person of interest to you is still going to be there. The tension doesn't go away whether you have a guardrail or not. And somewhere you're going to put the brakes on. Somewhere you will say, okay, I, I'm in this deep, I'm not going to go any deeper. At the point that you put the brakes, that's where your tension is going to begin. That's where your, your temptation is going to be launched from. I mean, I think um, all of us would agree that in any category, financially or morally or um, 
professionally, there are some lines that people shouldn't cross. Whether it's a single person, we all have opinions. There's, there's certain things that a single person shouldn't do, a married man shouldn't do, a, a teacher. I mean, there are things, lines that people should not cross. Now, we may not agree what those lines are or where they are, but we would all say, yeah, there are some boundaries that people ought not to cross. And uh, wherever you decide that that line is for you, that's going to be the point where your tension stirs. That's going to be the point where your temptation begins. Um, have you ever been bitten by a mosquito? <laughs> and there's a decision sometimes. I mean, sometimes you catch yourself scratching it, and you haven't thought about it. But at some point, you realize, hey, hey I'm scratching a mosquito bite. Did you notice that that doesn't fix the itch? Have you noticed that? You can scratch the mosquito. It makes it worse. There's something about the appetite to have the itch scratched that when you feed the appetite, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Second thing is this. Uh, when, you, when you refuse to have a guardrail, and we, we, I just got done talking about the fact that that doesn't eliminate the tension, but when you choose that, all that choice does is erode your resolve. Here's a kind of a convoluted example. Talked about the, we've talked about relationships um, before, and I, I suggested if you're married, don't have coffee with the opposite. Don't go out for a meal with the opposite sex. Seems like a great guardrail to me. It's one I live by. It's just not good for me to be with some other woman in that kind of an, uh, uh, it's just not the right thing. I've got a guardrail. So, but let's just, let's just hypoth- hypothetically talk about a guy who has, may not have this guardrail, and he's thinking, okay, what's the, what's the harm? It's not a sin to have a cup of coffee with someone the opposite sex. That's not a sin. Okay, so what's the harm? So I go there, and uh, now for me, my alarm bells will be going bang, 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 because I've got this guardrail. But let's just say that's not your guardrail. So you go, and then she says, you know, um, there's a great movie showing. I've heard a lot about it. Let's go to it. You're thinking, okay, movie, that's, that's harmless. After the movie, so, so maybe that's your guardrail. You don't go on a, what could appear to be a date, because everybody eats, but not everybody goes to movies, so there's your guardrail. Or maybe that's not your guardrail, so you go a little bit deeper. She says, well, how about dinner? Let's go to dinner. And you can see where I'm going with this. The next thing, um, of course, this is a woman inviting a man. I don't know why I picked it that way, but <laughs> because men clearly have no problems with this. Uh, now she says to you, well, why don't you come on over to my house? Is it a sin to go to the home? That's not a sin. So you go. I mean, you keep going deeper and deeper and further. What do you do when she says, okay, how about coming on upstairs? Or what if she says, you know, you keep coming to these decision points where you're deeper and deeper. How about you, you, you continue to fail into this process at some point, she says, hey, I want you to leave your wife and move in with me. Hey, I want you to, I mean, at some point, you will say no. Someplace you're going to draw a line and you're going to say no. The fact that you didn't have a guardrail at the beginning only weakened your resolve at all these other steps. And the further and further that you get into the process, the more complicated the consequences to yes and the more difficult it is to say no, the further in it you go. 
You just moves the battle lines a little bit closer to disaster. So I've talked about you know attitude, uh, the, the appetite involved. Our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. There's no such thing as the kiss that ends all kisses, the meal that ends all meals, the dessert that there's. Have you noticed this about your appetites? You can pick any area of appetite in your life. When you feed an appetite, what happens? Does it satisfy it, or does it want more? Yeah, it does. It just wants more. It doesn't matter what area of the appetite. So it, doesn't, it, it doesn't, really doesn't matter. It always wants to come back for more. And since that's true, what does wisdom say to us about where to build a guardrail? I think, what do you do if you know that's true about appetites, and some of those appetites are things that are not good for you? What do you do? Wisdom would say, pull yourself all the way back and establish a line that's more manageable to deal with those appetites. And if you decide that the problem with guardrails is that it keeps you away from things or it keeps you away from people that you really don't want to or it feels like they won't understand or it feels too extreme, I just want to encourage you not to deceive yourself into thinking that by saying yes, yes, yes all the time, that you'll never ever have to say no. Because when you do say no, that's the point where your temptations are going to begin. In, the, in about 605 years before Jesus, there's a pretty cool story that happens in the Bible, and that's where we're going to be in the text today. This is a story about a guy named Nebuchadnezzar and a few others. Um, and it happened in the area that we would call, modern day, would be called Iraq. In fact, Saddam Hussein... Uh, was uh, he, he kind of wanted to be like a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar, and he did a lot of things and kind of copied a lot of things that Nebuchadnezzar did. One of them was that uh, he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, and Saddam Hussein wanted to do that as well. Of course, it didn't work out for him. Too bad. Um, uh, sarcasm. I don't know if it, if it hangs well on me or not. But anyway, so, so much for Saddam Hussein. Hussein. So, but here's the deal with Nebuchadnezzar. When he, his big, powerful army... Um, he, 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 was, he was governing over an area, king over an area, um, and we know it as Babylon. But when he would go and conquer a city, he wouldn't just go in and lay waste to the place and enslave everybody. There was some of that that went on, but he was pretty smart. He was a very brilliant man for the, for the way he led and some of the things that he did. So he would go in and he would say to um, his, his, his generals, now listen, before you get in there and you destroy everything, I want you to go in there and I want you to find the most beautiful people, the smartest, the healthiest. Go find them. And usually this was royalty. And bring them back. Bring them back to, uh, to, to me. And usually, I say usually it was royalty because that's just a fact. You know, the people that were royalty were probably the best fed. Um, they were the best cared for medically. They were well educated. So they were usually the best and the brightest and the most beautiful people were the royalty. So he would say to his generals, bring them back. So, uh, so they would go and do that. And um, his intention there was to bring them back and to very slowly strip them of their culture and inculcate his culture into them. He would take from them what they were and what they believed. And so what you had was Babylon became this magnificent city with all of the smartest and best and brightest and most beautiful people. It was the world center. It was a pretty big deal. And so he would build these people and form these people into a shape that he wanted them to be in. He would actually export the, those people back out at times. I mean, so he would be exporting Babylonian culture. 
into, into the world. So, okay, so Neb, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to call him Neb, uh, because he, he, he decides, okay, so I'm heading into Israel. He goes in there and he plunders um, all these riches. He brings all this stuff back. And uh, with, with the beautiful people that he says, go get, are four, four famous people that you've probably heard of if you've been in church before. Daniel, Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, their enemy, over time, plans to strip them of all they believe, turn them from their values, and forge them into his followers. That's his intention. Okay, so here we are in Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. What a cool name. I don't know, it just sounds cool. Hi, I'm Ashpenaz. You know, chief of his, <laughs> his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Wow. Pretty cool, I suppose, if you're going to be conquered. I mean, this is a pretty good deal for these guys. They're going to get the best food. They're going to get free college. No, no, no tuition being charged there. I mean, think about it. These guys, are, they're sitting pretty. No student loans. They're going to be fed by the Iron Chef. <clears throat> I don't know if that's good. I don't like octopus and all that stuff that they cook with. But um, if you ever watch, never mind, never mind that's a rabbit trail. Anyway, so they got no student loans. They're being fed by the Iron Chef. I mean, they got the best that Babylon has to offer, and they're put in the five-star hotel, the king's palace. They've got it, other than being conquered, they got it pretty well off. And they're looking around. They're probably, I mean, I suppose some of these guys are probably high-fiving each other, saying, "Woohoo, we got it made. I mean, we thought maybe we were going to die in the desert like our parents and our grandparents and all these other people, but look at us here. We're in the lap of luxury. They're taking care of us. They're feeding us. They're clothing us. This is, this is pretty sweet. But not Daniel. Daniel's a pretty smart character. He's looking at all this. He's going, okay, there's something behind this. There's a pattern involved. I'm going to connect some dots because this is leading somewhere. And he's thinking, hmm. And as he connects the dots, he's going through a process that's really not rocket science. You and I can do this. We have the ability to look at the patterns and go, okay, connect the dots. What's my trajectory? Where am I going? Where's this leading me? Anyway, so he starts seeing what's going to happen to him. They, they give him a new set of clothes. They shave his head. wonder what I'd look like with a shaved head. They pierced his ear. They gave him a new name. Then they, they gave him the name Belteshazzar. Interesting name. Um, it's, it's a combination of words. starts with Bel. Bel was, is, a, is the name. Of, sometimes you see it listed as the name of a god, but actually Bel literally in Babylonian means Lord. In the same way we say Lord, if I say to you, if I stand up here and I say the Lord, you know I mean Jesus. Okay? In this case, Lord or Bel means Marduk. Marduk is a false god. And so then you take the, the Teshazzar part of that name, and it's a combination of, uh, of words that basically means Bell will take care of you, or Bell will watch over you, or Bell will be your defender. 
it's not really exactly what he wants to stand for anymore, right? So that's not really part of his plan. So he starts realizing what's going on. They're very, very slowly going to feather my nest while with these comforts, with these things I think I want, which I think will bless me, which I think will make me feel good, all the while they're going to strip from me what I believe. They're going to strip from me what I care about, what I value, and they're going to forge me into something that I'm not wanting to be forged into. And if I stay on this course, I've got a year or two or maybe three, I'm going to be worshiping Marduk instead of the God. I'll be in a world of hurt very, very slowly over gradual steps. Daniel recognized that it's something that, that many times you and I miss about the ebb and flow of the culture around us, and that's this. Compromise does not erase the tension. It only weakens our resolve. Oh, if I just give in, I won't have this, tenta- I won't have this, this uh, temptation anymore, but that's just not the case. We give in, it just only weakens our resolve to get to the next place. If you cheat once, it's easier to cheat a second time. If, once you get yourself into trouble with debt, it's easier to get yourself into more trouble with debt. Once you compromise and start trying recreational drugs, why do we call it that? That's a great euphemism. It's easier to keep doing that and going further with it. Once you cross the line, that tension doesn't go away. It just lowers your resolve. So Daniel saw this, and he realized what was going on. They changed my, my clothes. They changed my name. They changed my habits. One day, everything I've held near and dear is going to be gone. I've got to draw a line, and I need to, to, to establish that line, and I need to stay on this side of it, no matter how much pressure I feel. No matter how much draw, there's a, there's a good reason for me to build a line here. So he decides to do something. Let's... let's Pick back up verse 8. But Daniel resolved. That means he's made up his mind. He's as far as he's going to go. Enough is enough. Um, not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official, Ashpenaz, for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, there's a lot of speculation out there about why he refused to eat the food. Um, some people think that it was because the, the, the food had been sacrificed to Marduk, and uh, if he ate it, that's like endorsing Marduk. That, that's a possibility. Another was that he's a Jewish boy, and he didn't know how it was prepared, whether it was kosher and whether it would v- violate the Lord. I think that's a good possibility. There's lots of reasons why he may have refused or wanted to not eat the food. We don't really know for sure the reason, but here's something we do know for, for certain. He said, this is as far as you can push me, and I'm not going to cross the line. He drew a line. I don't think the why in this circumstance, why he didn't eat the food, was as important as the fact that he chose to not do it. That he made a concrete decision, I'm not going to cross this line. Anyway, for those of us in the church who grew up in Sunday school, you know, this is a fun story to read because we know what comes out at the end, right? We know, we know what's going to happen. <clears throat> Turns out great, but Let's get back into Daniel's mind. Daniel did not know how this story was going to turn out. Daniel had not read the book of Daniel yet, right? So here we go. A teenager, probably, stolen from his home. He's now sitting in a place. He's got conviction and resolve stirring in his soul and he's surrounded by the most powerful people on the planet. And he says, uh, excuse me, 
And he knew as a teenager that he was risking his future to draw this line. What could be his future was going to be potentially cut off like quickly. And let's look at it worse here. It seems that he does something bold. Maybe it's immature. I don't know. It might be spirit-driven. But he uses the word defile. Have you thought, have you read the story? You think about this. I'm sorry, um, but the king's food will defile my body. <laughs> what an insult. I mean, think that through. I mean, he didn't go up there with all this decorum and say, excuse me, but would it be okay if I didn't eat this food because I'm just not sure um, it will settle well with me? No, he says, your food will defile my body. I don't think there's a higher insult he could have made to these guys. I mean, they're saying, you know, hold on there a second there, starship trooper. (laughs) We brought you in here, and there's a lot of people in this kingdom that have nothing to eat, and you're not just going to get fed. You get the iron chef. You get the best pizza in the world. You get whatever. I mean, you're the best there is. And you're saying it's going to defile you. These guys had the right to be really angry because he really insulted them. I've read these stories and I think, you know, is this just the, the, the confidence that comes from speaking out in the Holy Spirit and you don't care how it comes across? And, or is there, I mean, is there, is there some courage that's required here? Or what's going on here? And I don't know, but it's an amazing moment when he says these words. And what's even more amazing is they didn't just get out their sword and cut his head off or pull that tongue and go slice or something. I mean, you ever met anybody that they said something you wanted to pull their tongue? No. But I mean, here's this teenage youngster, really, to them. These are the guys who have conquered the world. And he says, your food defiles me. (laughs) Okay, okay, fine. Um, Wow, he uses the word defile. Think about the things he's saying and the decision he's made, and he hasn't read the book of Daniel. Why did he take this stance? Because he hasn't read the end of the story. But here's the truth about what's going on with Daniel. He made all of these decisions because he could predict where the story was going to go. He made the decision not because he knew the end, but because he could predict the end like you and me, he knew where the trail that he was on was leading. And so he made up his mind, and he asked the chief official for permission, and he says, hey, the rest of my starship troopers and I would like permission to not eat this food. And let's watch and see how his decision to honor a guardrail triggered a landslide of the miraculous, Um, not just in his life, but in the lives of other people. Okay, on to verse 9. Now, God, this is always a stopping point for me when I see something like this in Scripture because here's why this is so important. As you are evaluating the guardrails that you're considering, am I going to do this? What will the guys at work think? Will they think I'm crazy? I've been kind of close to this before and I've never gotten into trouble. How far can I go with actually sinning? You're asking all these things. Here's the thing that we don't always factor in, but that Daniel knew to factor in the now God part of this. God will use your guardrails not only to protect you, but to direct you. 
Daniel's decision at this point to draw a line was the thing that God was going to use to direct his entire life. This was a fulcrum moment. It was really a big deal. If he hadn't stopped here, if he had just gone ahead and eaten the food and let him rename him and do all the stuff to him, there wouldn't have been any Daniels and Daniel in the lion's den. There wouldn't be any book of Daniel. There are so many things in the word of God downstream. My, my water will fall. Um, downstream from this moment in the scripture, so many things that would have never happened if he hadn't said, okay, here's a line, I can't cross it. I think, who knows? I think more than we can imagine hinged on that decision to eat the meat and drink the wine. The Lord is saying this to him, said, this is a defining moment in your life and I'm going to direct your entire life now because of this decision you're making today. It's a big deal. You'd be shocked how many times this kind of thing comes up where I hear as a pastor, you know, someone will say to me, oh, God became so real to me. And uh, <clears throat> I got the clearest direction of my life. And it didn't come when I was saying, hey, Lord, direct me. It came in a moment where I said, okay, this is a boundary. I'm not going to go on the other side of it. That is the, the, such a common thing for me to hear people. They look back at their academic path or their friendships or whatever. I would have never met my wife if I hadn't said, I mean, People make these determinations that their, their life was redirected by God because at some point they made this decision. I'll give you a, give you a couple of personal examples. I might have talked about one of these before. Um, I, um, <clears throat> I used to work for this big, huge corporation, and um, I had hired this company d- that was doing these projects for us, had a, done a lot of business with them, and over time I developed a personal relationship with, with this manager at this company, and it was a lot of money. Um, the annual budget was probably, I, I worked with him for two or three years, but it was probably half or three quarters of a million dollars a year. That much business I was flushing to this company. And um, this was back when the Seahawks actually won football games and went to some playoffs. Remember that? <laughs> the Kingdom. So <laughs> that's the last time I went to a, a Seahawks game was the Kingdom. Um, anyway, so this guy said, hey, you want to go to a football game? I said, Sure. So I went with him to a football game, and we watched one of the playoff games in the kingdom. It was a wonderful seat. It's pretty nice. And, and then, then, you know, a, a week or two, they're playing again. He says, here's some more tickets. You want to go? I said, yeah. So I went, you know, I mean, this is just innocent. I was already giving the guy business. I couldn't really give him any more business. But over time, he got to know me. What are your interests? Oh, what do you like to do? Well, I would, you know, hunt and elk and deer and all that kind of stuff and, and um you know, what's your dream hunt? Well, my dream hunt, you know, and I, I don't know if I told you the story or not before. My dream hunt, I said, well, I'd like to go find the biggest, baddest bear somewhere in Alaska, and it's me or the bear, you know, typical, <laughs> typical macho thing <laughs> that none of you guys ever think, right? Okay, so, no, I want to go on a bunny rabbit hunt. No, so I'm, I said, no, I want to go on this, that's my dream hunt. And a couple weeks later, he says to me, hey, I've got some plans. What? He says, I'm going to fly you to Alaska. I've got this guide. We're going to give you a new hunting rifle. We're going to pay all the costs, the tickets, the bear tag, the guide. I mean, we're probably at this time, we're, this was about 1980-ish, something like that. I mean, the price tag back then on what he was going to do for me was probably thirty or $40,000. Okay, the lights went on. 
that was very attractive to me. But I realized what was going on here. He was bribing me for future business without actually, I mean, he was playing me like a salmon on the end of a line, right? And I thought, oh, bad deal. I never went to any more football games with him, never accepted any more tickets from him. I basically said, hey, we're on the wrong side of a line here. I can't take the hunting trip. In fact, I can't do this with you anymore. And I took my responsibilities with this company and I delegated it to somebody else. I said, you make decisions. Make sure they're good ones. I'm going to be watching. For me, my integrity wasn't for sale. No one would ever have known except this guy, me, and God. And I know what was going on there in my life. Something of integrity was trying to be forged that would say, it's not for sale. So that's a great, good old story. I'm going to tell you a fresher story than that. And this is not for me to parade integrity. I'm just going to tell you some personal examples. Here's another one that happened last week. So I'm working on this message, and I'm thinking, okay, um, where is it that the Lord has redirected or planned a life based on a guardrail? And uh, so I'm doing my home bills, and I do some bills online. So I go to one of my accounts, one of my bank accounts. It's not like I've got all these bank accounts, but I, <laughs> I went to one of my many bank accounts. So I go to this bank account online, and although I'm on it regularly, several times a month, and I have been for years, I get on it, and instead of just showing my bank account, there's three extra account numbers that show up on the summary page. And I see my information there, and it looks right, but there's these other three accounts that are on there are not my accounts. And then to the right is the balance that's in those accounts. Two of them were savings accounts. One was a checking account. And the sum of those was a little, somewhere near $200,000. This is last week. I'm sitting at my desk at home. (laughs) Now, what would you do if you go online and you see all of a sudden accounts with your name that's not your money, that's a couple hundred thousand dollars? was curious. Um, I mean, I was never tempted to just go ahead and transfer it and buy gold bullion or anything like that. That, was, that. that never happened, but I'm the curious sort. My first thought was, how dare this bank have this kind of an online mess up? Because does that mean my accounts are somewhere in somebody else's study? I hope not. <laughs> but I was also curious. I thought, you know, how far can this go? So I get into the account and I I mean, I got down into one of these things where I could see check clearings, who checks had been written to. and I mean, I could see deposit. I mean, it was, I had access. I could have transferred the money. It was never an issue to me. The point is that at some point there was a guardrail. And once you build a guardrail, these kinds of things are on the other side. You don't care about them anymore. There wasn't this tension and this pull for me to steal somebody else's money. Imagine if Daniel had decided to eat the meat, imagine if a guy like me could be pulled over a, a, a moment like that. What's at risk? Oh, for sure they'd figure it out. For sure somebody come knocking at the door. For sure they would do this. Then you guys would have this. Our pastor just stole, I mean, imagine. It sounds cute, but imagine the real destructiveness. If hell can pull those kinds of things off. And you need to understand something. 
your future is no less profound than Daniel's. You have this tree, this web, this complicated web of people that are downstream from your relationships today and you have no idea what the Lord's planning to do over there in their hearts and in their lives. Some of you will become friends with someone who will father a child or, or, or somewhere and that person is going to be the person who cures cancer or something. I mean, really, you have no idea what's profoundly downstream from you. What hell wants to try to derail. By the way, hell doesn't know it's downstream either. God knows those kinds of things, and God plans to direct, but you need not be afraid of hell. But hell will attempt to derail you now. Wow. People saying, I wasn't trying to make a directional decision. I just was making a moral or an ethical choice. I was building a guardrail. And God used that, that moment to somehow not only protect, but also to direct. Daniel had no idea what was hanging in the balance. And neither do you. You might think you do, but you and I just really don't. And I, I want to say to you that if you will be tender before the Lord in this and pliable before the Lord. Your day will come in the future when you will look back and say, wow, God is good. He set these things in motion because I built a guardrail and I established something and the Lord has now directed me and everything downstream from me in good and prosperous ways. Okay, so back to verse 9. Um, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Daniel didn't know that this was going on. Daniel didn't know that God had already given favor upon the hearts of Ashpenaz and these other people. Um, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men at your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into a service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And this was the beginning of a journey of a difference for the future of the nation of Israel and all kinds of miraculous things that happened downstream. All because Daniel said, I don't know the end of this story, but I can predict where it's going and uh, I'm not going to go there, so I'm going to build a guardrail and that's it. So here are three quick and simple challenges for you and we're just about done here. Three challenges. One, you have to make up your mind to do this. You just have to make up your mind to do this. Two, know that to refuse to build a guardrail isn't going to take away the tension. It's just going to erode your resolve and make it harder for you to say no 
you will eventually say no anyway. And number three, make up your mind before you know the end of the story because you can predict the end already. You might think, you know, my marriage is moving in a bad direction. My finances are moving. My, my relationship with my kids or a son or a daughter. All this because I won't draw a line and say, here's how many days a month I'm going to travel because my child. Or here's, you draw the line. I have enough credit cards. I have enough responsibility on my shoulders or I'm going to stop right here. Culture is not going to help you with this. It's going to only bait you. You've got to have this kind of resolve in your heart where, the, where you say to yourself, you can cut my hair, you can give me new sandals, you can shave, you can pierce my ears, you can give me a new name. But that's as far as I'm going I'm to go. Good old Solomon has a wonderful proverb for us. Proverbs 11.3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. You and I have really no idea what God intends to do with us. And you never will know until you decide to draw the line and say no further. Culture is not going to take you there. But God will use moral and ethical decision makings possibly to direct your entire life. But you've got to make up your mind. We've talked earlier about the fact that there is the possibility that you might have been able to avoid some of life's absolutely biggest regrets if you'd had guardrails. That means future regrets can be erased today. You catch that? Your future regrets can be done away with today if you just decide to build guardrails. It will keep you from going there. And as common sense as all this sounds, when you go home, it's going to sound extreme to you again. Because I'm up here making a good case. <laughs> but when you get home, I'm not going to be there anymore encouraging you. There's going to be other voices. There's going to be other, there's going to be other messages. There's going to be other priorities. And in your crazy mixed up office where they won't understand you, that's exactly the place that the Lord can go to work just like he did for Daniel. God will direct you just like that. And you got to refuse to believe the lie that says, by refusing to make up your mind, somehow the temptation and the tension goes away. It just doesn't happen. The only thing that goes away without guardrails is your resolve. We're going to receive communion, but I want to pray over us as a church and um, ask for the communion service to come. And we're going to pass that elements in a minute or two. But I want to pray about this issues, uh, these issues as we wrap up this series and just ask the Holy Spirit to just work. God, we, um, um, <laughs> I just love the open-heartedness of the people that are here today. But God, just from a purely statistical perspective, many of us are headed for trouble. And God, we ask for mercy and grace where that's concerned. But even more, Lord, would your spirit hover? Would you nudge? Would you cajole if you need to? We know you do the things that you can do, Lord, to keep us out of trouble. But when we're intent, we can get ourselves into our, our trouble all on our own. But God, I pray that the Holy Spirit, that the, the truth and the light and the love of God would somehow draw us. 
that people who need to build guardrails and step back first because they're already in the danger zone, that, Lord, you will give the courage to do that, that, God, you will somehow give the fortitude. And if people think they're crazy, so be it. But, God, honor, honor those decisions, I pray. Lord, for people who have heard things in the last number of weeks and they just seem too extreme, they just seem so challenging, I, I just pray, God, that, um, that they won't have to learn by scrapes and crashes, but instead by the sweet drawing of your voice. It's kind of like, Lord, like me asking people to consider sitting in the front rather than putting ropes up in the back. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be forced, God. You're a tender shepherd, and the sheep know your voice. They shouldn't need to be herded from behind like cattle. Instead, Lord, um, let there be something in our hearts that listens, listens to the tender voice that can be trusted. Your voice, Lord. I think there could be people present in this room that this, this seems appealing, but it doesn't quite click because they don't have a relationship with you, Lord. So I want to pray, God, right now for any here whose heart might be open to the things of God and they've never said, I need to get right with God but I should do it. While we're praying, while everyone's eyes are closed, I just want to say to you, church, to you individually, every person listening, if you have never decided to get yourself right with God, you've never decided to settle what eternity will be like for you, now is the time to do it. The Word of God teaches that there's no way to God but by Jesus. Believe, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. There's a book called The Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is not written there, you will not spend eternity in heaven. And the way you write your name there is you say to Jesus, write it for me. And it gets written there by his hand because you become his. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, I encourage you to do that right now. And the confession doesn't mean you stand in front of a church. It just means that you tell someone you've opened your heart to the Lord. And miraculous things start to change in your life. That's how it works. If you would like to open your heart to the Lord, would you just privately look at me right now and let me agree with you in prayer. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to call you forward or anything. Is that why you're looking at me? Okay. Others? Lord, you are the God of the miraculous. Matchless love. How can we understand so much love? Thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.